Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, welcome back. This is The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks once again for joining us. And we are back in studio after months on the road out in France at the World Cup. We are finally back at base. I'm Alfie Reynolds and this week there's no Steve Jones, no Alex Lowe and no Will Kelleher. They've taken a well-earned break. So in studio with me, I have Elgin Alderman. How are you, Elgin? Is that implication that I haven't earned a break and that's why I'm still here? Mm, absolutely not. <laughs> it could be an implication that Wales went home earlier at the that World Cup. That is true, that, and that's not even an implication, that is just a fact. So. And, but I don't know if that's rubbing salt into the wounds, so... I, I believe that Elgin that. is the power behind the throne, that's how I view it. Exactly, and that is the dulcet tones of Alan Dimmock as well. How are you, Dims? Yes, very good. I'd like to say refreshed after the World Cup, but it's, it's been a week. Has it been a week? Yeah. A week and a bit? That would be a lie, I suspect. Last time I saw Alan was World Cup final... Saturday night and then you and your colleague Josh at Rugby World were getting an early early flight back to the UK because you then went to print on Sunday how was the chaos of of that weekend yeah I mean there are, get the violins out there's worse things than oh I had to stay up late to cover the Rugby World Cup final I mean very privileged position to be in uh yeah finished very late that night got the it felt like a red eye. I got the 9am flight straight out of um, Paris and we went to print 6pm on Sunday. So that was for the our World Cup retrospective look back on the entire tournament, which is, I think, on shelves now. It's hard to... I don't even know what day it is. You've lost That's Monday, right? You've lost track of time. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but what a tournament to cover and, um, you know... Uh, we don't need to pick the bones out of it just now because you've been, do, been doing it for literally months. Um, but, you know, a real change of gears getting back into to the club game. So I'm sure we'll turn on to that. Yeah, something we can maybe touch upon on this episode, obviously, as we get stuck into the Premiership, a bit of URC as well. But it is a, I think it's an interesting transition for everyone, for media, for fans, for some of the returning players as well, which we'll no doubt get onto, particularly with the contingent that Saracen's picked, Elgin. But after the seven-week juggernaut of the World Cup, the showpiece event that comes around every four years and how huge that is, transitioning back into into the club game? It does take a bit of time. I, I was at Sandy Park on Sunday. The attendance was just under... Nine thousand, and obviously for for the extra chiefs faithful, it's um, it's 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 as you were. It's what they're used to. But when you've been in 
Bordeaux, Lyon, Marseille, where you've seen crowds of 50,000, 60,000, you've seen thousands of travelling fans going over to France. It does take a bit of time to, to, to sort of recalibrate yourself with the, with the, the, the smaller Premiership feel, but uh, I'm sure we'll be, we'll be back in the mood of the Premiership in, in, in a few weeks once all the players are back, not just those that have been rushed back a week, uh, a week after the final uh, of the World Cup. I suppose it's weird in that we're doing this sort of segue, but Test rugby hasn't. We had a Barbarians versus Wales game at the weekend. Now, yeah, what was that about? I, I can tell you exactly what that was about. It was just a fond farewell for uh, some superstars of the game. Uh, interesting to see hot on the heels of that match after an emotional farewell to Lee Halfpenny. It was then. Well, was just slip a press release out. Oh, Lee Halfpenny's decided to go to the Canterbury Crusaders for one for a one year deal to, well, what has usually been a, a procession for the for them to win a title seven in a row. I think I think they've won there. Obviously, all change at the Crusaders now, but hell of a way to sign off the career to just be like, oh, you know what? I think I'll go to the best team in New Zealand for a year. It's a nice little secondment, isn't it? Just to to sign off with. Absolutely. Oh, and also, congratulations to England women. The the Red Roses won WXV one on the other side of the world. So Test rugby is still going on in New Zealand as well. And there's a certain player from that group that I think might be getting a mention a little bit later. So so well done to England women. And also on that note, we are hoping to speak to Jess Hayden, who regular Ruck listeners will know we often speak to around the Red Roses and a lot to do with the women's game. She's all across it. We're hoping to speak to her next week on the pod. We can look back on the WXV, also look ahead to the start of the domestic season as well. But by the way, just as well on the return to the club game, it's by no means a complaint. I just think it's quite interesting. I think you see that with a lot of people, that transition back into it, but there'll no doubt... There are loads of people watch, listening to this who are absolutely delighted that the, the club game is there and thriving and in the spotlight again. I'll give you a little a little snippet that's com- definitely apropos of nothing. Uh, this means zilch, particularly after how many rounds have been played. But the top team in the top three leagues in Europe so far are all based in the West. So we've got Exeter top of the Prem, we've got Connett top of the URC, and we've got Poe top of the, the top 14. What that tells us, absolutely nothing. I just thought I'd throw it out there. And that is exactly why Alan Dimmock is invited on to the Ruck for nuggets like that. More of those coming up, I hope, throughout this episode. But coming up on today's podcast, we're going to look back on the Premiership action over the weekend. Mark Palmer is going to join us to review some of the URC season so far. And, of course, as always, we'll name our God or Goddess of the Week. We're also going to chat about Alan's tweet which some of you, if you follow him over the weekend, may have seen about the Lions tour and whether France would be a suitable destination. So lots to get into, but we'll start off looking back on the Prem. So four rounds of the Premiership in the books, as Rob Baxter pointed out afterwards. It means we're not far off being a quarter of the way through the season already, following what happened with Worcester Wasps and London Irish. A 10-team league means all of a sudden it's pretty important that teams pick up wins. This week, Sale, Saracens, Northampton, Harlequins and Exeter all won five home wins. Elgin, let's start with the last of those. You were at Sandy Park for Exeter's victory against Bristol, which a little bit of a throwback, wasn't it? elements of that performance from the Exeter Chiefs? Absolutely. It was, a, it was a clash of two try-scoring styles. All of Exeter's tries came from a succession of phases on the try line with someone eventually barrelling over, three forwards and, and one back, Tommy Wyatt, the fullback. Compared with Bristol, for whom all three of their tries were scored by Rich Lane and came from Callum Sheedy, crossfield kicks, one on the ground, two in the air. I found interesting the first half was that Pat Lamb substituted his entire front row in the 31st minute. It's the the old bomb squad method we've seen before. We've seen Italy 
have their sort of second choice props for the first half an hour and then bring on their main props for the last 50 minutes because they get that 10 minutes before half time and then all the scrummaging in the second half when they've had a bit of a rest. So we had Bristol clearly looking to focus on the second half scrummaging and then it was actually Exeter's scrum that won them the game in the second half so it sort of backfired on them really. It, it would be quite interesting to look at the stats I'm sure they do their research on what goes into that sort of decision but as you say actually in the second half it was Exeter's scrum that was dominant maybe it's simply they just have a better scrum but it's quite interesting what the thinking is in terms of having your supposed second choice starting the game. There'd been only I think one scrum prior to the, the substitution happening they came on ready for a scrum which I think was the second in the match so it wasn't exactly like yeah they'd been panned in the first half an hour it was clearly a tactic to change all three of them at the same moment yeah it feels like they found the right uh, kicking lane no is that hey, good very good uh, I mean Callum Shady's got a, a name drop here and it's an interesting he's an interesting one to focus on with the injury travails that the, the Welsh national team have at fly half at the moment and I'm sure we could talk about that a little bit but I think the funny thing is, is I was speaking to the guys from Oval Insights who, who collect data on, on the top leagues, and one of the things that I got from them actually is, whilst Exeter scored what was almost like, you would say it was what, sort of old school Exeter style of scoring tries, and that they were close to the line. However, for example, uh, Tuima, am I pronouncing his name right? Tuima's try, and and by the way, what what a cracking young talent he is, is. That try, when you looked at it, to the build-up to it, is there was bodies flying everywhere in different directions. I actually didn't. You, I don't think you could predict that it was definitely going to be an old-school Exeter-style pick and go here because there were passing options around. They actually shaped like he was going to pass and go in. Now those tries were all close to the line, but actually this season, and obviously it's a small data. If you think of one scrum as a small data set, science scientists would be disgusted with that idea. We've not had very many games this season so far, but Exeter are currently leading the league according to Oval for tries from turnovers this season. Four. All others have got. Zero or one, really. There's there's one with three and kick return tries. Extra Chiefs are leading the way with that with three. So they're almost viper like in the way that they're getting turnover ball and using it better than other teams at the moment. So you've got to commend them for that. It seems like a real tactic for them, which is not something you would automatically assume is is extra style. And it sort of leads me to a different point of this. And my colleague Josh wrote about this in the magazine a couple years, a couple months back. Is we're calling them extra three because when we saw them first come up in the league, there was all the guys that helped them build season after season to become a Premiership team. We then saw them add to that as they were hunting for a Champions Cup title in Europe. And then we've seen superstar names go. You know, we've seen the Jack Nells go. We've seen the Luke Cowan Dickies go. We've seen the Dave Ewers go. Uh, we've seen the Simmons brothers go. And they're sort of having this rebuild. But they're so good at bringing talent on. And particularly, they need commended for the talent that they're bringing in from extra university that this sort of rebuild that they've gone it's not been flashed they've not been trying to sign these huge superstar names or anything they seem very aware of what their identity is and they've just been going about their business and whilst internationals have been away it's really paid dividends for them and actually on that the Bucks system the university sports system I think is something we've seen premiership clubs dip into a bit more in recent times you look at Don Brandt, Fitz Harding now, the captain, club captain of, of Bristol this season, came through at Durham as well. It, it seems to be a really good breeding ground. And actually speaking to someone who started coaching in the university game this year, they commented of just how good the overall standard is. Yeah, with Car- Cardiff Met was the big one in recent years because you've had Aaron Wainwright, Alex Dombrandt, Pearson as well, all, all come through there. You've seen... Scarlets have taken on board two of, of Loughborough's title-winning players for, for this season, uh, Teddy Leatherbar and Charlie Titcombe. With, with Exeter, it's 
it's interesting you're talking about sort of the, the talent they produce. They've almost become the, the, the fifth Welsh region in terms of attracting players that can know that they can study while playing. So not necessarily in, in, in that regard, finding players in bucks but having that dual attraction of knowing that players can study while while playing as well obviously Chris Chun's are David Jenkins are the obvious ones but now they've got Joe Hawkins and we can mention Joe Hawkins again later if, if we, when we come back to Callum Sheedy and the sort of vacant Wales fly half jersey because he, he's relative to that as well also Emmanuel Faye Waboso on, on the wing as mm. well a Cardiff boy that was at Wasps when they went bust and he, he was studying at the time there as well so there, there is plenty of talent out there and uh, it looks like clubs are, are starting to go looking for it. So do you think this is just simply that Exeter have identified and brought through talent at a better rate than others? Or is there some surprise that, admittedly, only four rounds in, affected by the World Cup, etc., etc., that they... Is there any surprise that they are top of the pile at this stage? It seems like when you mentioned the names, Dims, of the players that they were missing, it was this big X to rebuild... At the moment, it looks like they're ahead of where a lot of us externally thought they might be. Well, yeah, but the, this rebuild, I mean, it's not a surprise to them. They didn't get to the first day of preseason and go, oh, yeah, we've not got those lads anymore. Like, obviously, mm. a lot of planning went into that. The coaches that work at Exeter Chiefs are really good at identifying these guys. Also, I think the important thing is is that they see value in talent. I, I mean, I'm, I'd loathe to use the word money ball because it's not that at all. But it's they're very good at identifying things that they need. And also, they're willing to invest time. So, for example, you look at the two young nines that they've got, Beckinsale and Cairns. Those guys, they will have the avenue to play them in the Premiership Cup. And obviously, they won it last year, so they know what they're doing with, with young guys there. But also, it's it's about where the value is. You know, you look at someone like Ross Vincent, the number eight. Now, he's, he's from... South Africa and he's Italy qualified has played for Italy under 20s if we were to just go right well is that guy in qualified do we meet certain metrics for that they just see talent there and they're willing to go right we'll give that a go you know you mentioned Emmanuel Faye Wobusu and Josh Hodge is someone who they picked up who already last season was coming in and ahead of Stuart Hogg because there was a long term plan there in that they knew that they had to bring guys through. So this isn't a surprise to anyone. Now, did we expect it to be leading the Premiership? Obviously, you can't hide from the fact that we've just had a Rugby World Cup and guys haven't been playing very much. It's an interesting conversation if we segue to talking about Saracens, for example, where you hear from Mark McCall and some teams took the option to not pick guys. So, for example, Leicester Tigers opted not to pick, or the players opted not to play, you know, eight days after they, they played their bronze medal match in the Rugby World Cup. Leicester didn't pick a load of guys, whereas Saracens, by all accounts, those their players were champing at the bit to get out mm-hmm. and play there. And seeing those guys play that game, let's be honest, that was a massive difference. To be able to have Owen Farrell there pulling strings, to be able to have Marwatoji disrupting line-out, and, and my God, they feasted on the Leicester Tigers' disarray at the line-out there. It's a big difference. And this is another one that's worth mentioning as well. He was on the, You mentioned my epic journey to get back to, um, from the, the World Cup final. On the same flight as me back on the Sunday after the World Cup final was Augustin Creevy, who was there to the bitter end 38 year old Augustin Creevy, who played 80 minutes for Sale Sharks on Friday literally one week after playing in the bronze medal match and he scored the bonus point try on the 69th minute I mean I don't know whether that's impressive or to be like surely this guy should have had a rest but (laughs) the guy wants to keep playing rugby I'm not going to stand in his way well it maybe brings us on to I think this round of the premiership was very interesting wasn't it in terms of how were the internationals used you've spoken there about Saracens and it was pretty much everyone back in Ben Earl Atoje Farrell Daly all coming back I wonder as well whether that was partly motivated by the fact 
that Saracens lost their opening two games as well. And given that it's a shorter season, there isn't as much wiggle room, particularly when you think they'll lose a load of guys again, come to the Six Nations. Maybe they viewed it that they need to pick up wins. I would also wonder how many of those Saracens players are we going to see away at Kingston Park playing Newcastle this weekend, whether maybe they would have preferred returning in the home game. But on the flip side of that, Elgin, I mean, we looked at the team sheet for for Saris and for Leicester. Leicester not bringing any of their internationals back. You always suspected that it was going to be a pretty tall order for them to get a result away from home. Absolutely, and especially after the start Saracens had when the World Cup was going on. Obviously, that that huge defeat by Exeter 65-10. Obviously, by the end of the season, everyone will have forgotten that. But in the here and now, that will surely be driving them as well to turn the early season I car must, around. I must say that skewed some of the stats that I was fighting for <laughs> Exeter as well. But, you know, take the opportunity in front of you. But yeah, you're looking at the table now and, and Saracens 7th, Leicester ninth. So in terms of the start of the season, they were both looking, they, they had a very similar low-key start but perhaps Saracens you know they they talk so much about that wolf wolf pack mentality and so many of the players just love being back there and being part of it so I'm sure that was part of their thinking that they just thought right you know our players love being here let's rather than dip our toe into the water let's just start full throttle and then get our season back on track and then build once the the season gets going properly if I'm Ben Earl as well I do not want to break you know the mm. form that he showed at the end of, of the rugby well throughout the rugby world cup you know do you want to take a week off mate no 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 I want to keep going and it, like making busting breaks like he's continued what, what he did in France and Mara as well player of the match against Leicester disrupting line outs scoring a try very very impressive indeed just looking at the table as well it is interesting is it I mean you've got Exeter top on 15 points they've won three lost one Quinns and Sale are then behind them on 14 and 13 points respectively they've both also won three lost one you've then got a load of teams who've won two, lost two, and then Leicester who've won just one and Newcastle who've lost all four. But as we know of Newcastle, they don't spend as much as other people. It's always harder for them. You do feel like, or I feel anyway, that the Premiership is kind of waiting to sort itself out. Looking at the last two years, we had Leicester go on a big, big winning streak at the start of the year, set their stool out early on. Last year, likewise, we saw Sale do similar and we've always had Saracens kind of up there with them. You always felt those were the, the two best teams in the league that season this season it feels like we're we're waiting to find out exactly who the best team is who are going to be the early pace setters which i guess is as we keep mentioning down to the world cup yeah but also it's you know when you get to that sort of you, we've how many times have we done this where we get to you know the sort of two thirds of the way through the season and it's like well there's still playoff places up for grabs here and it's it's about figuring out who goes there so in terms of talent and what's been building over the last few years, you'd expect, I mean, Saris are always going to be in the mix. You'd expect Leicester probably should to be in the mix and Sale, certainly, if they're building the way that they we think they should be, will be in the mix. It's about coming up with the other ones. So whenever you see, for example, which we saw at the weekend, Saints going ahead, Bath, it's like those are two teams with question marks about them. Like, I don't know what to expect from those two teams, for example. Saints of years gone by, you know, you'd expect them to chuck it about a bit and they have players that will have a go. But their win over Bath at the weekend was built on a couple of things. Strong defence, yeah. good tactical kicking and the fact that Bath scrum turned into a dunked biscuit at the end of that game. <laughs> and, you, for, for example, if you look at Bath, for all the excitement that they've got with the talent and there was, you know, there was a couple, couple of changes in the squad makeup at the weekend. They missed Finn Russell, they, didn't they? Yes, but is Finn Russell going to solve your scrum problems? And that's mm. the thing where, you know, we're all in deep into our analysis now. Every other team in the league will have seen that performance at the end of the game and gone, right, okay, 
we can give it a go. Maybe the tactics that uh, Bristol used at the weekend would have been better used against the Baths, for example. And actually, speaking of fly halves, just to jump back to the Exeter Bristol game because we've kind of teed it up already. Callum Sheedy. And we saw some great stuff, Elgin. You saw some great stuff in person at Sandy Park. Also, some deficiencies at, at the tee. Where's he at the moment? When we look at the retirement of Dan Bigger, Sam Costello injury, that 10 jersey up for grabs for Wales, where, where does Sheedy fit into that picture? Well, he's certainly up there because Warren Gatland ran through some of his options after the Barbarians game and he said that he would be down to look at Callum Sheedy. Sheedy has 16 caps so he's below the 25 cap threshold but the his contract that he's on relevant to to when he made his debut means he is still available and we checked with Pat Lamb after the game he is actually still available eligible for Wales isn't he and Pat Lamb said yes he is still eligible for Wales so Warren Gatland will be watching him like you said Let's go through the, the the players that aren't available. Dan Bigger has retired. Gareth Anscombe has moved to Japan, so won't be available for the Six Nations. Might be available for a summer tour, but won't be available for the Six Nations. Sam Costello, set to be Wales' fly-off in the Six Nations. We now don't know when he'll be back because he suffered two injuries, upper body and lower body, in the in the Barbarians game. You've got Reese Patchell, similar to Lee Halfpenny, has gone out to Super Rugby. You've got someone like Reese Priestland, who's no longer available. So when you're thinking about who's going to be fly-half, Sheedy will be up there as a consideration. You've got Johan Lloyd, who's gone from Bristol, where he mainly played in the back three, but he was a fly-half originally. He's playing fly-half for Scarlets at the moment, so he might come into consideration. Then you've got young players that Warren Gatlin mentioned, like Ben Thomas, who normally plays inside centre at Cardiff. Also Will Reed, young fly-half for the Dragons. I mentioned Joe Hawkins earlier. There was a lot of talk about how he might be a Wales fly-half option one day, but he is ineligible at Exeter because he doesn't reach the cap threshold and he signed a new contract. So all of the various things that are going on in Welsh rugby in terms of contracts, injuries, where players are playing, having to go abroad to to earn you know, to, to safeguard their finances, which is why Hawkins has left at such a young age. It all means that there is this big question mark of the, the Wales fly-half jersey, and especially if Costello's out, no one is quite sure who will be playing the come the Six Nations. But if Sheedy can show that that that, that good play, and it, good kicking in open play, like you said, he missed two conversions. He didn't have the legs with, a I think, a 42-metre penalty, give or take, you know, with, with Lee Halfpenny absent as well now, suddenly you're looking at the Wales fly-half will need to be a kicking option as well. Kai Evans, someone I haven't mentioned, he played against the Barbars as well, 15 or 10. So a lot of question marks over it, and you know, there, there's a place to to be won for any Wales fly-half. I'm not a smart man, and I never actually figured out how to play the game Minesweeper on the desktop. That's what it's like picking a Wales fly-half at the moment. It's like trying to pick a random square and go, right, that, that one's worked, that one hasn't. Nice, Minesweeper. I was thinking Rubik's Cube was going to be my analogy, but I I think Minesweeper's better. It's interesting with Callum Sheedy, though, because with his kicking in particular, I mean, Bristol left 10 points out there against Exeter, which wasn't all him, but seven of them were. And it does feel to me anyway that Sheedy is a bit of a hit-and-miss kicker, not the most reliable, but then having said that, he's had some performances in his career. If you want to look back right to the beginning of it when Bristol were trying to get out of the championship and in the double-headed playoff final for the championship as it was back then against Doncaster, where he was a young guy, still a teenager, and had a great kicking display under pressure. And likewise, during COVID, the Six Nations, when he played for Wales, came off the bench and I think kicked the clutch penalty to secure that victory as well. So it's not that he's not capable of it, and I think he is capable of kicking under pressure, but it feels like maybe Maybe that's an area that if you're Warren Gatland at the moment, you're looking at it and you need someone that's more reliable. There wasn't that wasn't the worst missed kick 
of that Bristol game either, though, was it? No, it's the last one, yeah, which uh, we should mention. Yes, it was. It was the kicking duties were handed over to James Williams for that final minute penalty and I I suspect he probably rushed it because they were thinking if I take it quickly then we've got 30 seconds to go back and we'll be six points behind we can obviously come down the other end and maybe score a try and in the end he just shanked it left and they went no with nothing so they were the, th- the thing with Sheedy's kicking like you say there have been moments where he has kicked very well and obviously you can't judge someone's kicking off off one game alone but over the next three months if he uh, it will be key i think for what warren gatlin wants from from his fly half that he does get the nuts and bolts sorted and not just the eye-catching uh crossfield kicks and and lovely grubbers through to, to rich lane out wide yeah so exeter 29 bristol 20 10 points left out there by bristol but i think it's probably fair to say that exeter look like the stronger team that's certainly how it looked to me watching it on tv we mentioned saracens they beat leicester 32 17 fairly comfortable victory really a couple of late tries for the tigers um where else should we go should we go to quinn's quinn's 40 newcastle 12 if only to mention tyrone green and that try that he scored crossfield um, kick into the corner i mean superman stuff yeah for it. it was a uh, quinn's just quietly looking at looking at them quinn's are second in the table they've gone quietly about their business they've got four ones to three you know they're matching extra there they play the way that we expect them to play you know that that try was sensational. You can talk about the build-up as well and the fact that all eyes when it comes to, to the players... I mean, we're still... After an entire World Cup, we're still no clearer on the fly-half picture in England and where Marcus Smith goes. Is he a full-back now? I don't know. Either way, he came in, he, he put the cross-wheel kick with that connection he's got with Tyrone Green, a sensational moment. But I think you just got to take, tip your hat to, to Quinns and just the way that they've just quinsed it. Quinsed it. I like that. Northampton as well, you kind of mentioned it earlier, Dims, but a victory over Bath. And one of the really pleasing things, which you also hinted at as well, we think about Northampton, don't we, as a team that can score tries from anywhere. They're often at the top or near the top in terms of the attacking statistics in a premiership season. But when it comes to knockout rugby, that semi-final rugby, to be able to have a tighter defence, they showed signs of that in that victory at the bar. Yeah, and Phil Dowson after the game, director of rugby, was particularly pleased with that. I think the way that they, you know, considering the second half wasn't exactly free-falling, exciting, sexy stuff, they, they did the business. And also you've got to say, Tom Pearson, how well has he done going there? A standout for London Irish, and perhaps you could have said the style of, of play that London Irish have had, that maybe that suited him better. Saints, you'd have thought, was a natural fit for that kind of game, but he just has kept going the way that he's he's going and what a sensational talent he is. There's a bit of a logjam in terms of, of back road talent in England and, and whether you fit him in at the moment, but certainly he's got such a bright future. And then finally, the first game of the weekend, Sale 24, Gloucester 10, uh, a game played in the driving rain on a Friday night up in Manchester. Decent win that though for Sale. Gus War in particular, I think, is a guy, I know we spoke about him a lot on the ruck last season came into that team, became the starting scrum half because partly to injuries to Rafi Quirk, took his opportunity again, was sensational with his involvements, both in attack and defence. And again, a sale team that, first of all, you would imagine it's going to be a tough place for teams to go again and to get a victory. They have a very, very good record at home. Coming off the back of a defeat in the in the Premiership final, you would imagine they will have revenge or looking to put that right later on this season against a, a Gloucester team that may be struggling a little bit. I mean, they're two from two like a lot of the other teams, but certainly wasn't their best performance. I don't have anything particularly insightful to say about the match, but I just wanted to point out that it featured one of my favourite things in rugby, which is where Gloucester's try came from a touched-in flight, you're all onside, 
where it went straight into the hands of the Gloucester player. You just you just love to see that, and I just love it when that happens. And, also, and that's all I have to say on the matter. <laughs> well, also, speaking of maybe niche, not quite niche things, but the return of Mark At- Atkinson as well. It wasn't so long ago that he was getting into the England squad late on in his career, his first Premiership game in 13 months on Friday night, so good to see him returned. We'll park the Premiership action, though, for the time being, as it kind of dust settles and the teams get back into the swing of it. Up next, we'll turn our attention to the URC where we will have a chat with our very own Mark Palmer about the opening three rounds of action there. Okay, welcoming back Mark Palmer onto the ruck. Mark, great to have you on once again looking at the URC. We were just chatting about the Premiership and how with the World Cup, the return of internationals, it's kind of a a bit of a funny start to the season in a way. You maybe don't quite know exactly where everyone fits in, in the kind of league table at this stage. Has it been a similar kind of mix and match start to the season in the URC because of those factors? Absolutely, I think as you say, the return of um, international players and the, the sporadic nature, the nature of that has meant for it's been a great level labelling factor. You know, the, the, I think it's Connacht are the only team with a hundred percent record at the moment with three from three, and then there's a bunch of I think nine other sides who all have won two from three. Some of them potentially quite surprisingly. So um, it's uh, yeah, it's a real mix and match start for the season. No, no sort of clear patterns emerging yet, but I think that will it'll begin to take shape over the next month or so as those as those, as those players are bled back in. And looking at your patch, the the Scottish clubs in the URC, great start to the season, hasn't it been for for both of them? In particular, I look at Glasgow in terms of beating the Stormers at the weekend and Leinster as well. Yeah, I mean those are two um, pretty big scalps they've taken in the first three games. Um, the, the Scotland has been something of a, a fortress for them in the last couple of years. They've, they, they don't lose many there. You know, they, they were actually quite disappointed on Friday night against the Stormers because they had the three tries in the bag by half time. Stormers were down to thirteen men first ten minutes of the second half. Couldn't add to the um, add to the score. In fact, there was not a single point scored by anyone in that second half. Which you know, for anyone who's watched Glasgow and Stormers, is quite a remarkable feat, really. But so there, were, there was actually an element. Of frustration there that they hadn't got the bonus point but as you say it's a, you know, a solid start from them, a disappointing loss in Galway a sandwich between those two home wins that are Ospreys this weekend and all will need to step up their, their away form again, Edinburgh under yet another new coach, yet another regime reset Sean Everett, South African they um, have, they've looked solid, they've looked, you know there's a discernible game plan taking shape they won the first two matches, then lost to you know, Leinster at the weekend there, then Dublin, considering uh, continuing a, a miserable run of results. It's the best part of it, two decades since they won there, but enjoyed lots and lots of possession in that game and territory. Didn't quite have the cutting edge to execute, so I think they're still trying to marry some disparate elements together and to hopefully come up with a, a better hole than has been the case in the last couple of seasons. Hi, Mark. Um, I was speaking to a couple of guys from South Africa over the weekend, and one of the things that emerged was as good as the top South African teams have been in the URC over the last couple of seasons, it's still when we're at this time of year, it feels like they struggle with the Northern Hemisphere conditions. Do you think? Do you think that's the case? And do you think that that sort of smooths out the longer the season goes? I think it does smooth out, and you know, there's no doubt when you're going uh, from these kind of climactic extremes. I mean, Scotland on Friday night was absolutely perishing. Even for those who spent five weeks in the, the south of France were struggling, so um, heaven knows what you'd have uh, felt flying in from Cape Town. So I think there definitely is something to that. The Stormers certainly weren't able to play with the same kind of freedom that they normally are. 
uh, and, and Lions had, had been the same at, um, at Edinburgh the previous weekend, just kind of looked sort of slightly within themselves. So I think that will definitely even out over over the coming months as well. So um, again, probably an area where it's best not to make too many early early pronouncements. Yeah, and um, particularly when you look at someone like the Sharks, when they've lose, lost all the big names that they've yeah, lost to the yeah. South African national team. Okay, they've lost three from three, but it's early doors yet. However, you said there was no patterns that have emerged yet. There seems to be one pattern that sort of comes up every year, and it's we see the Dragons, the Lions, and Zebra struggling. Now, considering your no vast knowledge of the Italian game, do you think that Zebra can really turn it around, or is this sort of we're going to be expecting more of this for this season? Probably more towards the latter, but you know, turning it around for them would probably constitute you know three or four wins over the course of the season. I think that the bar has to be that low in terms of improvement from, from where they've been, and they've certainly you know the games they've been involved in so far have been exciting. They've been scoring a barrel load of tries, which again is, is not necessarily been a, a strong suit. Defensively, though, um, is uh, it is an issue. Uh, and has been uh, for, for a number of seasons. Uh, again, the, the, both the Italian teams obviously suffer heavily, probably more than anyone outside of maybe even Glasgow uh, in, in the league due to, to, to absences of players, just sheer volumes of, of, of guys. But to have claimed, I think, yeah, they, as you say, they've not won a game yet. They have picked up five bonus points from those games, which show that they, they've been competitive within them. But I do think it will be the usual cluster that end up sort of in, in the nether regions of the table. And Mark, maybe. That kind of touches on it, actually. But when I look at the URC, I often look at the end of the season. We've had some really exciting games over the last few years with the South African sides being involved, but it feels like it takes a while to get there. And maybe that's exacerbated a little bit this season, as we've already said, with the World Cup. And I know they've tried to correct the travel that the South African teams have had to do this year, haven't they? I think it's three three trips up to Europe they'll make rather than four. But do you still feel the actual... The actual kind of bones of the season and how the competition works, they're still trying to maybe work through exactly what the best structure is? I think so. It can just feel a bit of a bitty, fragmented season, even you know in years when there's not a World Cup slap, slap bang in the middle or slap, slap bang at the start of it. Um, the, you know, it, it feels that it does take some time to catch fire. Or the, you know, you'll get a run of three or four games and then it's a break for an autumn international series or for... You know, going into Europe, um, and then by the time that there's a bit more momentum generated on the other side of that, it's Six Nations and, and people disappear again. A big improvement has been the, the lack of clashes in the last couple of years with Six Nations and Autumn Test. They've, they've gone out of the way to avoid fixtures being scheduled on the same weekends as those games. I think there are a couple this year, just by sheer lack of weekends for the World Cup, that, that there are, are going to be a couple of times in the Six Nations, or certainly within that in that window, maybe even the fallow weeks, where, where guys will be unavailable. But hopefully that will be slightly less of a factor this year. But the uh, yeah, it, it does feel the fragmentation of it. I think that's probably a, a natural consequence as well of it being so spread out over so many territories and, and hemispheres even. It's uh, it's quite a difficult thing for, for momentum to be generated in this tournament. Yeah, speaking of different territories, we've we just had a game in London, and I'm going to throw this one to Elgin, actually. What did you make of the Ospreys uh, playing a game, a home game, away from home, but also in southwest London? And is this the efforts of the URC to kind of expand? URC in London, taking it to... I suppose different audiences is that kind of the general idea here the 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 micro reason would just be that the stadium in Swansea was unavailable and it's unavailable for some, for some future ends but in future ends they're taking it to the the brewery field in Bridgend which is obviously part of the Ospreys region uh, but the reason this is so interesting is that there's been talk in the past of Ealing Trailfinders obviously locked out of the premiership 
possibly joining the URC. There was there was reports that the Ospreys and Ealing might look into merging at, at some stage, and there have been reports that the URC and the Premiership might one day look to create this sort of non-French European league almost. There's, I, I know that in Wales, certainly among supporters, there's been a, a big appetite over the years to, to increase Anglo-Welsh fixtures. Watching Cardiff the Dragons take on the likes of Bath, Bristol, I think has more allure to, to fans, many of whom are sort of disillusioned with, with the, the non-international game. And you do wonder if this is sort of the Ospreys dipping their toe into the water for for some some greater partnership in future, whether it one day goes as far as a big non-French European league. I mean, when I think of that, I struggle to see too many downsides because you could have this state where you have maybe, what is it, about 30 professional teams you'd be dealing with here. You could have sort of four conferences of seven or eight. You'd almost have it, it would be ring fence in a sense because you'd have these four divisions that are professional uh, and that can't drop out of that. But equally, there would be a sense of promotion and relegation and jeopardy within that. Playing interesting teams in different countries, different teams every year, perhaps a cup element with that, where they'd still be playing French teams, but also maybe other teams from the, those territories in the cup tournament. So it, it's it's very interesting, and I think overall it should be deemed as. A vague success on Friday. Obviously, on the field, it was a great result for Ospreys. A young Ospreys team beat the Sharks 19-5. Didn't quite get the bonus point. Friday night obviously makes it slightly more difficult for the travelling fans from from Neath Swansea and the region to get over there. But I think the attendance was, what, something like 7,000, which compared to what they get in Swansea isn't actually that bad. I think they had only 3,000 for the for the round before against Zebres. So as a, as a first necessary uh, dipping their toe into the water it was it was interesting and yeah a vague success I suppose and just on the sticking with the, the Welsh regions for just a second then with Scarlet's Cardiff the, the big derby happening without the Wales players at those teams because of that match that we referenced earlier on the pod the Barbarians against Wales in Cardiff that's a bit of a shame isn't it I think the WRU have come out and admitted that it was probably a bit of a mistake really to, to have that fixture clash. Absolutely, because the, the Welsh derbies are the biggest games of the season. They don't happen that often. That For the regions, those are their big occasions where they can guarantee a bigger crowd. So to have a situation where, I know it wasn't the derby itself, but to have a situation where Justin Tipperick wasn't playing for the Ospreys because he was playing for the Barbarians as, as his farewell, it doesn't exactly support the view that it, it's all about the URC for, for Wales and what they're focusing on and obviously a big thing for this World Cup cycle will be Wales trying to get that relationship between the national side and the regions you know, on the same page and working together like, like Ireland do so it certainly wasn't a good look but Nigel Walker did say that it won't happen again but uh, yeah well we'll see if it does because <laughs> it might well do Yeah we'll wait and see Mark we'll let you go just a final one Kyle Stain I wanted to mention he's got an injury hasn't he is he now a doubt for the Six Nations and just how big a blow is that both in terms of club and international He is he's looking at at least 10 to 12 weeks which would take him kind of right up to uh, early rounds of Six Nations territory. I think you know it's a significant blow for Glasgow on and off the field. He's one of the most consistent players, but also as captain, is a, a fantastic leader on and off the field, set standards in training and whatnot. He, he drives a lot of what's been good about the club since Franco Smith arrived last summer. Scotland-wise, they're fortunate enough, obviously, with, with Darcy Graham, who himself is out until the start of December with a hip injury. But with him and Duhan Van der Merwe, 
there are um, a couple of other <laughs> reasonable options there. But certainly for Glasgow, I think going into that kind of busy side, either uh, busy spell either side of Christmas with Europe and, and league games bumping up against one another, it's a, a significant blow to be without him. Mark, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Cheers, Mark. Mark Palmer there. Next up on the pod, we'll finish off with our God or Goddess of the Week and we will ask the question, should the British and Irish Lions consider touring France? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, great to chat to Mark. We'll get onto the chat about the Lions and God or Goddess in just a second, though. But we should mention, Elgin, the WXV, the inaugural season of that competition. You've been keeping one eye on it. What what have you made of, of its opening season being played out in New Zealand? Obviously, it's been a slightly difficult window, seeing as it started during the World Cup, and for, for British viewers at least, obviously, take the WXV1 taking place in New Zealand means it's it's early morning starts to, to get up to watch it, so it had the possibility of getting a bit lost. I know I was speaking to someone heavily involved in, in women's rugby at, uh, at World Rugby at the World Cup and they actually said that they thought the timing was quite good because people were going to be focusing on international rugby while WXC was beginning. I think what we've seen from the crowds out there, especially in New Zealand, is that they have been disappointing, especially when you compare it to that wave of support we saw during the World Cup. I was at Eden Park for that final last November when it was 42,000. It was a world record. It's obviously since been beaten by England's standalone game against France in the Six Nations when it was 58,000. So it was it was disappointing to see that that sort of wave of support didn't continue. Obviously, the allure of, of New Zealand winning a, a World Cup as they basically always do in the, in the women's game was what drew people to that World Cup final. Whereas this time, again, it's sort of keeping this feast and famine of of the Black Ferns just peaking when it matters at World Cups. They lost two of their games. They lost to France, and now they've lost convincingly to to England. The thing for the Red Roses, as we build towards a World Cup in England in 2025, will be 
them beating New Zealand in between a World Cup is nothing new. Leading into the last World Cup, they smashed them by a combined margin of 99-27 uh, in, uh, in tests in England leading into the World Cup. But when it came to the final itself, New Zealand turned it round and won that brilliant game 34-31. So while it is obviously a great fillip for England to have won this, to have won the inaugural WXV1, to have beaten New Zealand in New Zealand for only the third time they will still have to pro- almost certainly beat them in two years' time, which they have failed to do in five of the past six World Cup finals. Do you still feel, though, that it is significant maybe for some of those England players to... Exercise the demons. Yeah, I mean, it's never going to replace, is it, that World Cup final defeat when England came in as such heavy favourites. But yeah, just to, to go back to New Zealand, to beat them on their home, to almost be able to park that and now properly move forward? Absolutely, certainly. Like I say, only the third time they've ever done it. The previous times were back in 2001, when obviously none of this cop were playing. 2017, I think four players were, were left over from then. So while the likes of Marley Packer have done it before, those younger players that are coming through, yes, they now know we've beaten the Black Ferns in New Zealand so again they should have absolutely no fear of, of uh, well they should have no fear of any team in the world because the Red Rose you know before that defeat they'd won 30 matches in a row so yes some demons have been exercised but again all that will really matter is when they possibly meet in the World Cup final which tends to be what happens England versus New Zealand they'll have to beat them then and you'd think that when we get to 2025 it'll be at a stadium like Twickenham and it'll be another big perhaps world record crowd unless the world record has already been set as a, as a Twickenham capacity by then and as well as you touch on a hope that as a competition it doesn't get quite as lost in kind of the schedule amongst a wider rugby watching audience I know fans of the women's game would have engaged in it and no doubt enjoyed it particularly if you're an England fan but it did feel a little bit to me like the timing of it wasn't ideal yeah and I think speaking to people behind the scenes there's a sense that as fantastic an idea as well-meaning as this all is, is that perhaps the setup of WXV has felt a little bit rushed. So there will be teething problems with the with the elements of this. They're just trying to figure it out. Things can change. You know, if I could talk to you until we're blue in the face about World Rugby organising new tournaments and, and such like, and particularly when people don't actually nail down what's what the structure is going to be like there's going to be lots of questions and lots of nature pours a vacuum so there's going to be lots of stuff to fill it but but with this one they're feeling their way through it you know the very first one going head to head with a rugby world cup a men's rugby world cup is always a, a tough one to set up be interesting to hear in the coming months how they've learned from that and go in obviously world rugby changed their focus so often now they've got the pro- now they've got to try and sell their brand new version of the sevens world series which is something that's been overhauled as well sevens uh, I think is how you might have to pronounce it the way it's no written. vowels allowed no vowels in it well hang on explain that well, how's it spelled S-V-N-S oh really this yes. is the new branding it's been rebranded it's, yep. it's shorthand it's shorthand made manifest for those journalism lovers no vowels allowed and that's okay interesting yeah so we're going to have that come in so they're going to have to try and sell that to the masses because it's a reskin of an event that's been going and they're trying to kickstart that there's a lot of things that to their credit world rugby are trying to kickstart we've just got to try and figure it out and they, these things might change in the coming years it's just but you know the first one under the belt and just purely from an england point of view they'll be buzzing final few points for this week's episode so in a week where we had Warren Gatland back Andy Farrell to be the Lions head coach we had our very own Stuart Barnes writing about the Lions and how it could well be made up of a huge contingent of Ireland players when it comes round in 2025 based upon the form of all the various nations at the moment Alan the other day you took to Twitter the suggestion the Lions should strongly consider a tour to France and it blew up yeah I, I, what started as your your classic 
pub style conversation. I was chatting to a few mates and I was I just said, I honestly can't fathom why it's not even a discussion. Just threw it up on Twitter and yeah, the people people seem to like it. Um my my thinking on that is, and obviously I'm probably love drunk from my time, uh, from my basically two months on and off in France for the Rugby World Cup. Just seeing the passion for the sport there when France are involved and just seeing just the true desire, the commercial power behind it, the way that it can, it can take hold in certain regions, that just seems to me custom built for something like the British and Irish Lions. And for something that's been talked of as on and off as an anachronism at times you know something that needs to is constantly struggling with the battle between tradition and modernity to me it just seems almost crazy that it's not even a a, a widespread discussion now you could maybe throw it at them and they go yeah we'll consider this but at the moment we're sleepwalking is probably harsh but it's just like there's a pitter patter of oh we'll play in Australia and then four years later we'll play in New Zealand and then four years after that we'll play in South Africa and then four years later we'll do it all again tradition tradition and you can set your watch by that now this is a team that had the the adventurous spirit in the Victorian age of jumping on a paddle steamer for 10,000 years and going to the other side of the world and touring for till everyone was grey and coming back and people falling off paddle steamers and all sorts of stuff you know this is a team that has played Pacific Island team has played France in 1989 has played against Sri Lanka has played Argentina now those were all one-off games and they were all on the way to playing these three Southern Hemisphere nations that are incredibly powerful but it it just throwing a token game here or there or and in 2023 or 2025 by the time it comes around no doubt we'll be talking about how there'll be interesting bidders from the Dubais of this world or the Singapores or the Hong Kongs of this world for one-off games. Remember the Lions played the Barbarians in 2013 on the way to Australia in in Hong Kong, a game that almost killed off the Barbarians as an idea and was played in obscene uh, temperatures where we had to have special fans to cool everyone down. Uh, It just felt a bit silly, all of that. Why not entertain the idea of playing in France? You know, one of the very strongest teams in the world a country that is madly in love with the sport that genuinely has its own feel for the sport you know a culture all of its own and that commercially could be powerful and now I'm not going to lobby on behalf of the Lions let's not hide from the fact that there's a real commercial nature to it now Mm. if I was them the idea of potentially leveraging your position against the other three Southern Hemisphere nations because France are in the mix would be quite attractive to me. So for, there's a lot of different things to go in it. There's a lot of different avenues you could go down to discuss it. But I just think we should be discussing it, right? You use the word tradition. The thing when you think about these Lions tours and doing that every four years to the same three countries, it's actually not that traditional a thing. They, they only started yeah. touring Australia outright in, in 1989. So I think they've only been three sort of outright tours to Australia. And even in the 80s, they used to go every three years rather than every four. And there were two outright tours to Argentina before the Second World War. So actually, I think the tradition argument, which is probably the strongest argument, it's actually not sort of even as traditional as some people think of it as being. I think the other thing that would be good about France, and I think if France did happen, realistically, it wouldn't happen until 2037 because Mm. New Zealand and South Africa are the next two, and that still remains the biggest challenge in international rugby, is that it would mean so many more British and Irish rugby fans get to watch the Lions because Mm -hmm. it's a long way and a long commitment to go to Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. You get the one-off games like Argentina in 05, Japan before the recent tour. I actually think... Again, there will have been commercial factors in this. But at the time, I was supportive of... There were talks of that 2021 tour happening in Britain, weren't there? Mm. Because 
of the the pandemic and everything that was going on and in the end it was played in south africa behind closed doors whereas it could have been in front of a packed twicken and perhaps a packed principality stadium a packed murrayfield in britain which at the time one of the reasons i quite liked that idea was because it meant that so many british and irish rugby fans who have never seen the lions play would have had the opportunity if you have it in france you'd probably get at some at most grounds probably more Lions fans than, than France fans at the at the game as much as France would love to see that you know Lions take on Toulouse midweek or something or or play Toulon in Marseille or something along those lines. I, I mean, this is a thought exercise, but that Elgin's touched on exactly the sort of thing that I find attractive is the idea of seeing some of the powerhouses of French rugby being involved because let's be honest, we've seen some the midweek games. We've could seen be great, some yeah. midweek games that have been pretty dark. Uh, mm. over, over recent years, and you know, I'd, you look at the makeup of the of the the upcoming tour in Australia, and yeah, there'll, there'll be some interesting stuff, but there'll be some walkovers mm. in that. France, I just think there's this atmosphere, and the, the other interesting element to this for me is whether you like it or not. And in 2023, we probably should be having a conversation about wait, why is this the case? But World Rugby and their discussions for the new global calendar that starts from 2026, Lions tours are enshrined in that. So every four years, they have made exceptions to be like, no, no, the Lions has this special place. So if you're someone like France, maybe you'd want to have that sort of spotlight on you. I'd be interested to know if anyone in France in a, in a, a powerful capacity is is considering contacting them to talk about this or if they already have. Elgin, I know you want to come back in in a sec, I suppose, just to play devil's advocate and the potential can of worms it opens. If you open the door to say France and there's a lot of good reasons that you would do as you guys have outlined how many other countries then want in as well every every four years South America tour yeah and obviously we've been talking about women's international rugby there is talk of a, a women's British and Irish Lions tour happening and that isn't governed by any sort of tradition because it's starting and the front runner for that to happen would be France because absolutely the France Les Bleus and the club game in France is realistically the only proposition for for lions obviously they can go to new zealand but as we've seen you know new zealand in terms of its women's rugby isn't as wholly supportive in general as it was during the world cup and there's an ongoing debate in in new zealand about just how supportive it is is it supportive enough of the blackburns and women's rugby in france that is much less of a concern so when if a women's british and irish lions tour happens it almost certainly will be to France. And that could be, again, to use the phrase I've been using throughout this podcast, dipping the toe into water and then realise, oh, actually, we could do this for the men's one as well. Commercially, it would be huge, wouldn't it? I mean, we we were all out in France for the World Cup, as you've rightly pointed out, Elgin. The opportunity for fans from Britain and Ireland to go over would be far more accessible than other places. I think huge numbers would travel. Let's just tell everyone in France, right? That zombie at the Stade de France, <laughs> you'll get that eight times. Yeah. Right, let's finish off this week's episode. God or goddess, either of you want to kick us off? You've got a nomination? Well, uh, I think that it's only right that it's given to Marley Packer, who was just named uh, Women's uh, World Player of the Year, captain of WXV winning side Red Roses, uh, a real belligerent lead from the front style of player <laughs> for the magazine we've spoken to a couple of people who played against us like yeah yeah part of our game is getting under your skin and she's she's really the sort of front foot aggressive player that's the style of play that the Red Roses have become known for and I just think she rightly is getting her dues and the next time she plays it'll be a 100th cap for England brilliant Elgin, God or Goddess? I'll go for 
The international retiring Lee Halfpenny, who was clapped off the field in Cardiff, ready for his little one year with Crusaders, which will be very interesting to see. Throughout the Gatland era, starting off as a, a young whippersnapper who thrilled on the wing for, for Cardiff, Wales and the Lions, and then bulking up to become this you-shall-not-pass fullback. He's had so many lows and injuries throughout his career, but he was there at the back for some of Wales' greatest moments during the, the first Gatland era, so I go for Lee Halfpenny. Well, both of those nominations are better than the name that I'll chuck in the mix. I think I probably would agree with you, Dims, that Marley Packer is uh, is the winner this week. But just to throw someone different in, I wanted to mention Gus War. I know I mentioned him earlier when we were chatting about the Premiership because of the great season he had last year, but setting up tries in the rain on Friday night holding up tries over the line as well, putting in a a defensive shift, a few incredibly important interventions for sale. So I wanted to mention him, but I agree. I think Marley Packer and Lee Halfpenny are are far better options. Gents, appreciate you joining me. Thank you, mate. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. That's quite all right. Welcome anytime. We'll be back next week, uh, as usual, on Monday to round up all the action coming ahead this weekend. Make sure you follow or subscribe us wherever you get your podcast from. And we'll see you next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.